All right, welcome everybody to Legal Tech Week for May 7th, 2021. This is the uh, weekly program or sometimes weekly program, occasional program, where we talk about the top stories in legal tech and innovation. And we didn't meet last week, so we've got uh, plenty of ground to cover if we want to cover it all. Uh, and uh, we've got most of our usual panel here today. Um, Victor Lee and Molly McDonough are not going to be able to be with us, but uh, the rest of us are all here. I am Bob Ambrogi. I write the blog Law Sites and also have the podcast Law Next. And uh, let's see, do you want to all introduce yourself? Nikki, you want to kick us off? Sure. Uh, I am Nikki Black, the legal technology evangelist with my case law practice management software. I am also a legal tech journalist. I write columns for the ABA journal, Above the Law, the Daily Record, and the My Case blog. And I will actually, I, I'm acting like I'm in stand-up. I was going to hand it off to someone because we do that in stand-up with my company. I'll hand it back to Bob. <laughs> you can pass it off. Go ahead. You hand it off to whoever. Let's see who you'd hand it off to. Who's I your apologize. favorite? I totally slipped into like <laughs> Who's your favorite panel? This is where we get to find out. I don't have, a, I'm just going to go to the right of me, which is Steve. Steven, okay. is it Steve or Steven? I always call you Steve and it's, I don't think that's right. It's Steve. No, it is Steve. Oh, it okay, could be right. either, but, but it's, okay. that Steve is fine. Uh, well, the two of you can meet, get to know each other. <laughs> not used to going second. Jeez. Uh, I'm Steve Embry. I publish the blog Tech Law Crossroads about legal innovation and legal technology. Uh, before that, I practiced law in big law for about uh 40 years. I'm also uh, uh, vice chair and soon to be chair elect of the ABA Law Practice Division, which I'm happy to say has at this point over 21,000 members. So uh, I guess I will hand it off to Joe. Hey, hey, everybody. Um, I am Joe Patrice from Above the Law. I am in a different room than usual because I am on a different coast than usual. I am in the Pacific time zone where it is noon. And so happy hour has become, well, gin. I feel as though like I can't, I can't turn to bourbon until uh, it's a lot later <laughs> than noon. And how did you get there? Did you actually fly? Did you actually take one of those uh, things that fly in the air? So uh, I could have, but I did not. I actually drove, uh, which is a, it was kind of an adventure trek. I've done it before, but uh, I wanted to be able to show folks around like the Rocky Mountains and stuff. And so I took a trip and took pictures along the way. It was a, it was an adventure. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Who do you want to hand it off to? Oh, right. We're doing the handing off. Uh, I will hand it off to Victoria. Then. Hey everyone. My name is Victoria Hudgens. I'm a reporter based out of Philadelphia where I cover legal tech and cybersecurity and primarily just how lawyers use technology in their profession. Um, you'll find my byline on Legal Tech News and also um, other ALM uh, sibling publications such as Law.com, American Lawyer, Corporate Counsel. And who I'm going to uh, pass the baton to next is the person that's below me in the Brady, Brady Bunch box. So Caroline, you're next. Yay! <laughs> I thought you were going to give it to your editor. Your yeah, boss. exactly. Yeah, thanks. Well, I just lost brownie points. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Um, Joe, I have to say you're looking more rested. Like you're looking, you're looking relaxed. Uh, yeah, yeah, Caroline Hill, Editor-in-Chief, Legal IT Insider, URL, LegalTechnology.com. 
um, based in the UK, global coverage, I will say that, and Bob goes, I don't know where my coverage is, <laughs> um, and recovering litigator. Yeah, driving fifth, driving fifteen hours a day will make you look rested. I don't know. I don't know how rested. I can possibly look rested, but okay. You do. You look young. You look like super young. Maybe it's dazed. That. Oh, and Zach. No. Yeah. No. I. I um, so, hey, everybody. I'm Zach Warren. I'm editor in chief of Legal Tech News with ALM. Though over the past twenty four hours, I've been the editor of We Are Having Technical Difficulties, which is not great. But <laughs> otherwise, um, we cover everything in the gamut uh, in terms of how lawyers interact with technology. And yeah, you'll also find me on Law.com and other ALM brands. Yeah, so what has been going on with Law.com? I've been trying all day to read the stories that we were going to talk about for this piece, and I can't get through. It's a great question. Ask our outside <laughs> server for, server providers. Oh, sure. Blame them. So actually, let me, I did not know this. I want to jump in here. So uh, our website's also crashing like crazy, and it won't let you embed things. And like, if you do, it breaks down the thing. So I'm, I'm interested in who's attacking legal publications everywhere. Well, as you know, our, our, website, our website regularly just doesn't work, so I'm not really like <laughs> Somebody's staging a DDoS attack on uh, the legal tech bloggers of the world. That's great. Yeah, I, I can guess. I can guess there's an association that might be behind that. <laughs> yeah, it actually might be whoever's been. Well, actually, I've been getting like. Uh, everybody's been like going after me on Twitter. I'm not going after me on Twitter, but over the whole Bradley Gayton thing, like somehow I'm caught up in this whole like angry people on Twitter about Bradley Gayton because I had him on my podcast recently. Um, and uh, apparently he's stirred a lot of anger with a lot of people uh, and uh, it's all coming out on Twitter. But anyway. I have um, all sorts of anonymous people that love me, but it isn't really me. There's some woman who has Nikki Black in France is doing really well in The Voice. And so every day my feed is full of people saying fabulous singing, except in French, I'm assuming that's what they're saying. But so it's just like <laughs> the opposite problem, but it's not really me that they wanna hear, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's get to it. Um, I mean, I kind of feel like we should start off with Cleo. That's been, it's been a couple of weeks now since that happened, a week and a half or so, but, uh, uh, we didn't meet last week. And, uh, you know, um, one of the, you know, the, the big news was that Clio not only had another financing round of $110 million, but that uh, it came at, at a valuation of $1.6 billion, uh, making Clio the first law practice management company to achieve so-called unicorn status. Uh, which is a you know a, a startup uh, valued at a billion dollars or more, and um, you know it's uh, it's it's probably a, a just a, a a very strong reflection of of where we are right now in this post COVID world of of the strength uh, everything we've been talking about here over for a while, but this the sudden strength of the cloud, the sudden strength of, of practice management applications of this kind, the importance of them for running uh, lawyers' practices. Um, you know, I don't, I suspect Cleo probably didn't even need the money really. Uh, and uh, it, it's it's really interesting that that they did this, um, but I, I think it, it reflects 
bigger things about where we are uh, with legal technology. Um, there is this whole interesting trend. I, I've, I hear this a lot now. I, it was a, not long ago on, on my podcast, I had um, interviewed somebody who um, talked about their recent raise after having been in business for like 30 years and never having had to raise a dime because they were profitable and they bootstrapped the company. Uh, and kind of made the comment about how, well, you just kind of have to raise money these days just to be cool and get attention. Uh, whether or not that's true, I don't know. But I was just talking today to a, uh, a CEO of a company uh, that's been in business in legal tech for a number of years who has never raised a dime uh, and feels like he gets... Uh, ignored it not ignored but but that he you know he doesn't get the kind of media attention that he feels like the way to get the attention of the media these days is to raise money uh and that if you don't raise money then uh you're just kind of you know overlooked um and uh so i don't know uh, what do people think about cleo what do people think about that general issue of uh do we only cover the ones that uh that make headlines by raising a lot of money that's going to be the craziest reason to raise money, right? Like, <laughs> well, no, that's not a reason to raise money. <laughs> as much as we like, you know, like to blow our own trumpets, you know, that's, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think, I mean, it, 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 it speaks volume. So I was, um, I did an interview with a company in the UK, which is also a unicorn called Access Group, but they, they, they are not, the, the difference, obviously they've got, they've just created their own legal division. But that, that that that's just one division, right? And so that they're a unicorn, but it's it's so it's impressive that that Clio is just the. I think that they're fair. I think it's fair to say that the first dedicated legal legal vendor to to reach unicorn status is that right? Do we think it's? A, I don't think there's any others. Well, if you're looking at discovery in particular, there's some. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Um, I don't think Relativity gave the actual figure publicly, but um, Wall Street Journal had a source that said that they were over a billion. Okay, that um, would make sense. I think some others as well. But, and then there's been some contract companies like Ironclad got a hundred million, which probably puts them somewhere in that general range, but that's a contract company. And I'm not sure you could call that like specifically legal. So for okay. some, definitely for the category that Clio is in, I definitely think that's correct though, that they're the first one that is over a billion, which is kind of crazy. Well, they said they were the first one in the practice management space. They didn't even say they were the first one in legal period. But I, I mean, yeah, if you, some of the e-discovery company, relativity has got to be up there. Ironclad was did get a valuation of a billion plus for yeah. this last raise. Um, trying to think of who, I mean, there's got to be- And Rocket Lawyer last month. Yeah. Rocket yeah. Lawyer last yeah. month. They raised like um, nine figures. Uh, right. So they have a, a evaluation, evaluation over a billion or just at a billion as well. Yeah, right. yeah. So it's a practice. So it's a practice management specifically, yeah. right? Which doesn't it doesn't take away from it. It's just it was just interesting. Um, yeah. And I do think like it does kind of help like for us as journalists when we maybe see that press release that says, "Hey, we raised fifty million dollars for our legal tech company." Who's not really going to cover that? Like that is kind of like a quick coverage, but I think kind of like the people that you see kind of like reaching out to you and saying like what they're seeing in the market. Like, I think that's still how you can get coverage and just at least be, um, become like that source. And when they kind of, when you have stories, when you need to know like what's going on in the legal tech market, what's going on in e-discovery or CLM. So I still think there's, you know, a path so you can be 
someone that uh, legal tech publications go to, but it does kind of like, it is interesting if a legal tech company raises a couple million or uh, eight or nine figures or something like that, but I still think they can be coverage. Yeah, it's news. I mean, you've got to cover the news and, and that's, mm -hmm. that's news and you're going to cover it. Uh, and for if a company uh, chooses to uh, bootstrap uh, and doesn't need to do a raise like that, uh, what they do need to do is find other other ways to uh, spin an interesting story about themselves and get get the attention. If they want to get the attention of journalists, um, there are many other ways to do that and many other ways to make news. Yeah, that was that, Sorry. I was just going to say that was kind of my first thought when you said that is, yes, that is one piece of news, but releasing cool products, doing something new, opening up a new avenue uh, for legal technology that in a new product category that maybe hasn't been released so far. There's many ways to innovate that isn't necessarily raising dollars. And also, as, as we've seen with other entrants to the market that have raised a ton of cash, it, it doesn't mean anything. And, and, you know, so we've seen and others come in like Atrium or whatever and just not succeed or, or, or slightly more established legal tech vendors raise and then burn through the cash, you know, and I guess it's sort of falls to us to look, look behind the, the raise, right? Like, so what Clear has done is genuinely impressive, but the, just because it's a raise doesn't necessarily mean it's a success. I think that's probably falls to us to kind of be a bit more intelligent in the way that we kind of interpret it over a longer period of time. Yeah, well, yeah, we, all, that, that, we all saw the Atrium really story last year and we know what happened. I mean, you know, there, there's... Uh, example uh, a uh, exhibit a of uh, of why raising a lot of money doesn't mean you're successful yeah and i was i was just going to throw in on a non-legal front you know we have the the we work debacle and the theranos debacle and there were a lot of journalists investors and everybody else who for a very long time did not look behind the curtain and see how little there really was there. And yeah. uh, so I think Caroline, you're right. I mean, we, as, as journalists, if I can, if I can throw myself into that category, I think it is important that when these things come out, that we, we try to be uh, objective and inquisitive and investigatory about what is or is not there. Yeah. It's a tough curtain <laughs> to look behind though. I mean, it's yeah. they're not very, almost none of these are publicly traded companies. Uh, and it, it's really hard to get data about uh, or, or, or that kind of insider information about what, what's really going on uh, behind the curtain in a lot of these companies. And so to a certain extent, you have to kind of take their word for some of these representations. And also when there is a big investment, you have to assume that those investors have done some degree of due diligence and uh, haven't just thrown their money uh, at the wall to see if it'll stick, that they've got some idea that there's something working here or going on here. True. And I, and I don't know about the rest of you, but I often I kind of celebrate when I get hear news like that. I mean, something really good is happening in, the, in our collective business and you think, great, you know? <laughs> Sorry, Zach, I apologize for interrupting. Oh, no, you're good. No, it, kind of building off that point, though, I think it's something that a lot of us on this call I know do is it helps to think like an investor and think about the business case that they're making as they're doing these raises. Like one of the first questions when I talk to a company after they do something like that is say, 
okay, so what is the business problem then you're trying to solve? Specifically, how are you going to be using this funds to expand, to do something new, to hire, what have you? And I know other people here are doing the exact same thing and asking those questions kind of gets to the root of what their business proposition is, but also is it a smart one? Or is it just saying, oh, we're going to expand scale and, you know, we have some ideas down the road, like nothing really set in stone, which I have gotten a few answers like in the past. Um, so it's kind of on us to put on our own business hats and say, oh, is, does that actually make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, How much business are they really winning? Right. So so one of the things I want to talk about, if there's time later, is a couple of start, sort of startups that have won enterprise contracts. I think that there's been a lot of like puff and you know oh we've won this business but actually it's just like one law firm signed one thing for one deal and like actually are they really generating are they profitable are they actually are they kind of what's the expression are they actually washing their face or you know that like it's, it's quite it's quite tricky because of the time if you know amongst other things to sometimes really interrogate but I think that we're getting a bit smarter about <laughs> about doing that yeah just one other thing on the Clio before we move off of that I, I also reported uh, this week that Ryan Govro, the co-founder, is leaving, uh, which I thought was uh, I was kind of surprised by that uh, news. Uh, but uh, they said he, I mean, he's going to stay on the board, and that, and he uh, he said he's going to remain very much involved with the company, just not on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and uh, uh, the uh, he said he wants to spend more time with his family, so. Uh, a lot of respect for that decision. So good for him. Um, what else? Uh, what was the other? Uh, I'm trying to remember what else we had on the list today. Uh, uh, Log geeks forming an ALSP to provide legal services in the U.S. You wanted Nikki? Was that you? I think. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, especially on the tail of other um, VLS. ALSP. VLSP is in Rochester, Volunteer Legal Services Project. I'm getting my SP confused here. Um, <laughs> but alternative legal service providers. Um, it, uh, th there was really a lot of news this week um, about those. And so this caught my eye. And it's it um, basically legal geeks threw itself in the ring, so to speak, um, with Utah's program to um, uh, provide uh, alternative legal services um, uh, become an alternative legal service provider. Um, and I also had learned something I didn't realize about them, which was that, and I just recently, a couple months ago, wrote my ABA journal column on contract analytics tools that were AI based and that they also have now transitioned to having people behind the scenes, lawyers um, also providing some reviews. So they're moving from just a technology tool to um, sort of a service provider in that respect. and the, as I understand it from reading the article, the um, idea is that it's just from start to finish rather than in terms of also being able to provide some legal advice through that particular program um, in Utah. And I just thought it was interesting to see how they're transitioning and um, also that they're becoming part of that program. And especially in light of all the other news, some of which I think we had slated to talk about. One, I don't think we do, which was on your blog today about Arizona and some things that they're doing there that you've blogged about, Bob. 
But I, I think it's just interesting that I feel like that space is heating up a little bit now that those programs are in place. And um, I'd be interested in hearing what others thought about um, what's going to be happening with those programs in the near future, too. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I'll throw the story that I had in there as well, because it's connected, which is basically that Utah extended its sandbox program for another five years, make it seven years in total. Um, they have 26, I think, in total that have signed up for the program at this point, and that's less than about nine months in, which isn't too bad. Um, they've actually gotten some bites and they found it uh, relevant and worthwhile enough to extend what they're doing. Um, it, it was interesting in the beginning because when Utah and Arizona did this, I feel like a lot of people thought, all right, the dam's broken. Now we're going to get California. We're going to get New York. That hasn't really happened. But I think like what you're talking about, Nikki, and what you, uh, the Utah extension uh, in the past couple of weeks, Ontario also said that they're doing a similar uh, regulatory sandbox program as well. It shows that the momentum hasn't fully stopped yet. Um, it's the, there's still some trickle, there's still some breaks in that dam. And even if there's not the deluge yet, there's still more to come, um, I think. So I think you're going to see, especially when a few like law geeks, if they're successful, then that's a use case for others saying, oh, this is something that actually is viable. This is, and also if Utah is going to be doing this for seven years, it's going to be around for a bit. It's worthwhile for me to invest resources now to actually get this done. Um, so I, yeah, I think you're going to see more moving forward. Well, plus Utah actually grandfathers the programs, I think, don't they? Doesn't it? So, I mean, if you don't risk having to close your business down if they end the sandbox, if you get it into the sandbox, then then you're you're good to go. But I, I talked to uh, Justice Timmer, who was the Arizona Supreme Court justice who chaired that task force that led to the recommendations, um, and uh, she's going to be on my podcast that comes out Monday. Um, she said definitely there's going to be others. I mean, she that she's been in conversations with other states and she knows of things going on in other states and, she, and that uh, she has no question that others are going to follow suit with what they've done in Arizona. I think extent is, it seems like really early days to be extending it, but I think that it's a really positive thing because I think that one of the things when it first, when Utah first, when it sort of first came out that there was going, the sandbox was going to go ahead. One of the things I think, would deter me is this was the short duration i think now there's i think that will open up the field it, it sends out a really positive signal i think to the market that that, that it's not a short-term thing yeah yeah and just uh the, the thing that i had mentioned uh, that nikki alluded to before i just wrote about it on my blog today was the uh um they had approved steve i'm seeing double vision of steve for some reason <laughs> um, oh goodness! Me too, Steve. There's two of you. There's two How of us. How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> we can't have enough. We're Steve. multiplying. Yeah, okay. Oh, oh. damn! There's only one. Um, you, uh, the Arizona did. Uh, I mean, they're really just getting started in Arizona. They they approved this last August, but they've just kind of set up this committee that approves the alternative business structures. It's been meeting since January. They've now approved three businesses as alternative business structures. So they're co-owned by lawyers and non-lawyers. Um, none of them are exciting uh, in terms of access to justice. They are, I, 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 as I recall, two, at least two of them are basically 
CPA firms or tax tax firms that are going to be providing legal advice along with tax advice, um, which is, you know, sounds like what the big four already do. Uh, and I think the other one was a kind of a financial planning or wealth management uh, firm of some kind. So none of them are, are at this point focused on access to justice, but they do have a number of applications that have been made. Rocket Lawyer um, is, is, has submitted an application uh, and uh, a number of other entities are trying to get in in Arizona there. So that will change. I still maintain, and I, always, I have all along that for true access to justice, you need to fund LSC more. Um, and that all of these, anything that's sort of a private entity sponsor type of thing isn't gonna work because of capitalism. You need to fund LSC or refund it. It's basically defunded so that um, the government, um, sure they may, there may be a lot of bureaucracy and they're not um, the most efficient at doing things, but when they set up those um, services to provide um, uh, legal services to people who can't afford it, it actually gets the people who can't afford it rather than it ultimately ending up being something that is like the big four taking advantage of this ability to practice law without a license because of the rules becoming more lenient. So I, I, I'm still waiting. I'm hoping that under Biden, maybe that will happen in terms of LSC, but that's a completely different issue for a different I day. To, I have to say, obviously we're further ahead on the you know deregulation side. And it hasn't, in my experience, been focused on access to justice at all. It's, it's about how you make corporate, how the corporates get cheaper advice, you know, and how you how you build in tech. And and I'm not, I'm I'm, I'm actually quite a fan, but it doesn't necessarily promote HJ in my experience. Certainly not in our experience. Right. Uh, I. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that I agree on the LSC. I mean, I certainly agree with funding the LSC more, but uh, you're never going to get the degree of funding out of the federal government for the LSC that it would take to really tackle the access to justice crisis. And I don't think the LSC is. I don't think legal services organizations are set up to meet the full sort of array of legal issues that people face in the world. I mean, they they tend to be pretty focused on specific, you know, landlord tenant and family and, and immigration, maybe and uh, things like that. But, um, you know, I, th that's not an answer. I mean, another thing they're doing in Arizona is this, what are they calling them, legal para paraprofessionals or something like that, which is sort of like the LL, triple LTs that Washington had. Um, and again, they're, they're, that didn't do very well in Washington State, as we know that the Washington State ended that program, but uh, they, they seem to be hopeful in Arizona that they've they've created less sort of bureaucracy around it uh, and uh, tried to make it easier for people to be get to get certified to do that. So essentially, you can deliver legal services directly of certain kinds without having to go through three years of law school and, and everything else. Uh, so it really lowers the barrier to entry to be able to provide legal services. And I, I think you know, and it also enables people who are in more geographically diverse parts of the state. Arizona is one of those states with a lot of legal deserts in it. Uh, so it enables people to be able to provide services in more geographically remote um, parts of the state. So I don't know, you know, the, the verdict is obviously out, uh, but uh, I think it's, I think it's moving in the right direction. Well, I hope okay. I'm wrong. <laughs> I'd love to see it fill that gap. So I hope I'm proven wrong. And literal deserts uh, in Arizona, not just, and not literal, just legal ones. They, yeah. they have those too. They do. And canyons, all sorts of cool stuff. And Bob, um, you make a you make a great point as usual about that because you know when we when we talk about access to justice, sometimes we focus on the most marginalized 
people um, as maybe we should, but there's also a, a huge class of people that uh, that don't have access to a lawyer, uh, small businesses, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, people going through divorce uh, or child custody issues that they may have some money, but they can't afford to pay a lawyer and, but they're not poverty stricken. And, uh, you know, that's a, a huge market. And we were talking about uh, Cleo earlier, but, you know, Jack Newton is, is very big on trying to figure out a way to, for lawyers who have not enough work to do um, to reach a group of people that have more legal problems than they know what to do with, but just can't afford a lawyer. So, so it's a, it's a, it's a broad problem all the way around. Yeah, the, the low bono world uh, is going to be the next big challenge to deal with too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so Monday we all learned, we all learned today kicks off the clock conference. <laughs> Somehow none of us seem to know that. Maybe, well, I shouldn't say none of us. I'm Steve speaking knew. for myself. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> until Steve all emailed us this morning asking, how do you get a press registration for the clock conference? Uh, and we all said, what clock conference? Um, I was I, I was really impressed by, I mean, I don't know whether it was, you know, sort of the collective thought process, but literally within five minutes after I sent that email, I had a, an email from Nicole at clock saying, oh, here's your press pass for the thing. Looking forward to having you there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, we told her to let you in, Steve. You know, we, she wasn't so sure, but when she heard from us. Um, but, uh, but Victoria, you wrote a story this week that's, uh, I guess, of, of some uh, relevance. I don't know if you wrote, did you write it or you picked a story this week? I actually, yeah, um, my colleague, I believe Dan Clark at Corporate Council, he wrote like the breaking news when Mary O'Carroll stepped yeah. down from Google and also stepped down from being president of Clock. And last week, I think it was last week or maybe it came out this Monday, I can't remember. But um, I wrote kind of like- All a blur. Yes, it's all a blur. Um, an analysis piece looking into like Mary O'Carroll leaving Google to um, leaving Google to join Ironclad, a legal tech company. That's a really big one, I think, for legal tech and just kind of like a legal ops veteran leaving for um, a legal tech company. Where I would assume she maybe could have went to like a big like general tech company or something like that. And just like Mary O'Carroll, kind of um, she's part of a trend that we've seen in the last few months of legal ops veterans leaving the corporate world and going into legal tech. Um, and some of those people include um, Liberty Mutual, um, Bob Taylor and Jeff Marple, um, in-house legal ops leaders at uh, that insurance company. Uh, back in April, uh, eDiscovery Tech and Services Provider Company Compliance hired um, the former managing counsel of BN BNY Mellon and TIA's former chief operations officer and chief of staff, Brad Rogers joined um, on it. And just kind of looking into like, and they've happened pretty closely, the announcements have come out pretty close um, to each other. And I was just wondering like, why are we starting to see these types of hiring? And speaking to um, those legal um, those legal tech company CEO, CEOs that have hired legal ops people, they said it's just kind of like they've reached a certain level where they need those insights from in-house at having a seat at the table and not just necessarily reaching out reaching out for like a client call saying, hey, what's going on? But having them in the ear in their people's ear every day to figure out like how should we be developing like our services or what type of challenges should we be trying to make sure that our software helps um, solve. And just kind of like, as you're seeing legal tech 
companies mature, they have to bring those insights in, in-house. And Mary O'Carroll, I thought it was interesting. She said, you're maybe also seeing um, uh, more legal ops joining legal tech because they're actually, they have their battle tested. They kind of see like how you um, bring, how you improve operations in a company. And you might, and she was saying, oh, this is another like career opportunity for legal ops. I'm just kind of wondering, like, we may also see like more legal ops hiring coming into legal tech, especially with legal tech companies. They're raising a lot of money, and they may have extra cash. They can kind of say, like, "Hey, you can come over here," and you know. So I thought it was interesting and something like, well, I I'm assuming see more of a trend of, and especially it goes um, against kind of like what we normally see with Zach and Reese, my editors. They mentioned about usually the big hires legal tech companies do. It's usually um, in sales or marketing. But now you're really seeing someone that is coming in to help with their sales, but more to provide more of like, this is what I'm seeing in the industry. And these are um, the experiences I had and how you guys should be going after your clients or at least building your um, software or your services this way. Although I would uh, be a bit cynical and say there is a sales aspect to this as well, because at a number of corporate legal departments or corporate organizations, um, the, the, the legal ops people are becoming uh, key decision makers in purchasing technology and, and in talking about the systems that, you know, to be used within the legal department and, and all of that. So, um, you know, for uh, an ironclad to have Mary there, um, that gives them a foot in the door uh, to talk to a bigger foot into a bigger door, perhaps to talk to uh, people who are uh, in a in a key uh, decision making uh, role within within their organization. So there might be a little sales and marketing part of it as well. I I definitely think there's an element of both. Um, like we've done stories recently too, just kind of talking to legal ops people, GCs, and the general perception is in house is getting smarter about the tech products that they're buying. Um, I think it was John Albright with Hub International told us basically, yeah, it's great if people have in-house on staff, but I want to know specifically what they're putting into the tool. What are those experiences? How is that actually being baked into what's given to me? Because otherwise you can have a talking head and that's great. But if the talking head's actual experience isn't reflected in the tool, then it doesn't mean anything. Um, and I think a lot of particularly tech savvy legal ops people are starting to realize the same thing. Um, so that's what gives me a little bit of, I guess, hope that somebody like Mary O'Carroll going in, yeah, it's in a sales role, but also I think Ironclad, frankly, would be dumb if they didn't leverage her for actual R&D and building out her experience into the oh, tool right. as well. Totally. So, so, I, so I interviewed her um, the other day. And um, so this is just so, just so specific to her rather than the legal ops moving to legal tech. But so so what's interesting, and I'll be really curious to see how she, because we know how she's kind of helped develop the legal ops role. But so she said that she sees within the contract lifecycle management area. So her, her role, I'm sure there is a sales element, but she's called chief community officer. I was like, what does that actually mean? <laughs> um, and she, one, one of the elements of it is going to be quite genuinely to develop a community which as we know that's what she's done so successfully with the legal ops side and I said well will that be competing or how does that fit in with legal ops is it going to be um and so it'd be really fascinating to see where she takes that you know within the contract life cycle management area where I kind of think that she has a vision for 
developing it in the same way as she has done legal ops, right? creating a real community and sort of getting what she said is that within the contract space, you have to have all different voices, right? That's obviously, I mean, within legal ops, debatable as to whether they have got brought in all the voices they need, but that's her ambition to kind of bring in all the voices, create the dialogue, create the community. So I'm, I'm kind of really curious as to where she takes it. Any other thoughts on that? Caroline, what's going on in the UK this week? A lot. <laughs> yeah, aren't you about Anything to go to war with tech? <laughs> aren't you about to go to war with France or something? Like yeah, I've been out on my boat all day. I've been going, get it, get off my fish. <laughs> um yeah, so um, it's been so busy. Like one of the things I thought about, I was I was quite late sort of submitting my thoughts, but anyway, so, but um, so it's just nonstop. Like the news is just nonstop at the moment. I don't know, you guys probably find the same thing. But so there were a couple of things. So, but this, this spoke to me about the maturity of the market. So there are a couple of stories this week about, um, there was uh, Reed Smith announced an enterprise agreement with Brighter. And then Hogan Lovells um, announced an enterprise agreement with Legatics and their press releases with respect are terrible because you have to phone them up. And I mean, we should always, always phone them up anyway, but like, it's just really not clear as to what this means. Like what stage are you at? What does this mean? Is this new? You, like for me, it's really hard to work out what's actually going on. But when you speak to them, as I did in both cases, obviously, um it's what it is is that they've been so 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 um both very different um legal tech companies brighter i'm not trying to draw parallels between brighter and legatics but the, the just the parallels that the, the law firms have waited they've done pilots um they've they've got experience of the tech and then further down the line they've then announced that they're they've signed an enterprise agreement um and i think that's kind of the right way to do it i think that it's it's you know they they've 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 played around with the tech. They've they've tried to you know they've actually got a couple of really good working you know they've got some they've got some actual you know they've been using it in, in anger as it were, um, but it, it it kind of showed spoke to maturity in the sense that they're you know this is a worthy announcement. So when I spoke to them both and I spoke to actual Reed Smith couldn't talk about the actual client. That's not really their fault. But we talked about that they're doing work with Brighter on data protection. Um, and then Legatics, um, again, you know, they've actually been doing work, really proper work. It just spoke to me. I just kind of thought, well, this is this feels like a maturity, right? This is they've been, you know, it's just it was just interesting to me rather than just going, hey, we've actually done anything, anything with this startup, right? We've just we've just, you know, we've, <laughs> it was it was just more than that. So I kind of thought that the fact that they both came in the same week was quite interesting. You, we haven't gotten to the rants and raves part, but you you did touch on something that I would I would love to rant about, which is just how poorly written so many press releases are, uh, and how much they failed to tell you at all what they're about. Yeah, I literally <laughs> and, I was like, I was yes, like, what we should it? always be calling people to follow up anyway, but it would be nice to know what you're calling about, you know? Exactly, work it out. So so we could we could do some serious training, like. What is the actual point? Why are you telling us what you're telling us? What has changed? What is new? What is new? <laughs> and, and that and the, the best thing I was ever told, if anyone listening and ever writes a press release, imagine you're telling your friend what you, the, the story like and just write it like that. Like that you're telling your friend, this is the story. And yeah, anyway, yeah, I could rent all day and go on mute. I always I always get a kick out of it every time I, I quote a press release in one of my posts. It, 
it and then I run it. I ran everything through Grammarly and and another editor in it. So I always rewrites the press release, and I'm thinking, like, don't you guys like have these kind of tools? I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the grammar is one thing, and then like you know, just the fact that they they're they're like mud. I mean, you just can like I'll, I'll read them over several times and say, I just don't know what's happened. Why what? Even the headline is like doesn't help so anyway of course, and, of course some of the time not, nothing has happened which is well <laughs> a good a fair point a very fair point that's, and that's giving me to... i don't know go ahead i was just gonna say this is giving me flashbacks to legal writing class you know in law school like tell the story rather than get caught up in all the legalese and mumbo jumbo and you guys are basically saying the same thing so i think it's just good writing right and we've said this before, you don't want to get caught out writing something that's not a story, right? So you want to make sure that it's not puff, that's new. And, and actually, the both both of these, were, it's really cool. You know, they've actually really progressed and it was really, they're really interesting stories. But it's just, yeah, it's just trying to interpret and make sure that it's not just, just some, you know, opportunity to just put out something that's not really a story. And it, I don't mean to paint a broad brush either, but I, but I think what often happens, especially with some of these, well, I think what often happens is they end up writing, they're not writing for reporters necessarily. They're writing these press releases for their executives or their investors or, or somebody else. And, and maybe for a committee of executives who are all gonna have to approve it and sign off on it. And by the time it gets through all that, um, ain't much news left. Yeah. Joe had an interesting, or John, sorry. I don't know if you saw the question in the comments. The, do you like the story narrative for press releases or outline form? I thought that was an interesting question. What do you guys think? What does that mean exactly? I'm not sure what that means. Well, like, exactly. like whether it, mean? whether it basically reads like a like a version of a journalistic story that we then pick apart and recreate, or whether it's here's a series of bullet points and we then create our own story. Um, I, I pref personally, I prefer the bullet points to a point, but then with quotes that are easily pullable into, uh, into a story. So you don't necessarily need to write a narrative, but if the bullet points are beefed up with, here's something you can just block, pull and drop in, that would be ideal. I, I love it when they write, when you've got somebody who perhaps has been a journalist who writes it the way that we would write it and you read it and you go, and I'm gonna swear now, I'm not gonna swear. You're like, that, that, I can just, use that that's effing amazing and then and then but then and so my one tip would be that that is not going oh we are amazing that's going the client that's this is the problem that we solve right it's not going oh this company is we with this they're so amazing and we love them it's like i'm never going to include that it's like this is the problem that they solve this is really this if you think about think about what your audience what 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 do, what do the people want to read about how is it useful what problem is it solved like only include interesting useful stuff that if you would if you were the end user like if you were the client you go oh i think i might need that you know like rather than they're amazing. I love them. I particularly love John. You know, like, like no first. <laughs> <Sorry. Yeah. laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like it's got to be useful. It's got to be that, that for me is the only stuff I would ever include. I don't know yeah. if everybody else. I'm ranting. I, I generally prefer not to press release at all. I mean, I'd prefer to just get an email from somebody saying, "Dear Bob, here's this news we're announcing. Here's what the news is. Here's uh -huh. why we think it's significant. 
uh, would you like to speak to somebody in our organization or something exactly, about it? Exactly. Here are some good people to talk to. I say that to people all the time. I don't need a press release, but if you do have a press release, that's yeah. Yeah. Don't you think that you want, like Caroline said though, some, cause everyone's in a rush and sometimes you just want to get the news out. Some useful chunks of text to cut and paste to throw in there and build a story around or no. I, I, yeah, I, I do. It depends how yeah. desperately busy I am. Well, yeah. I, I like to, and exactly. I like to just like background information is helpful, you know, yeah. it, because then you don't have to go like look up, you know, how this company may describe itself or how it describes the, the, the product. That's, that's, that saves a lot of time for me because, you know, I don't want to go looking around on the internet to see what, you know, widget co does, you know, when it, somebody's already said it. <laughs> yeah. This may just be a problem with my good. aging brain, but sometimes I even read those things and I can't, I still don't know what the company does after the. Fair oh, point. What were we saying, Joe? You were like, oh, no, the, the, I was completely agreeing with Steve. Those bios of the company are always useful for pulling the couple of lines about what they want to describe themselves as. Because I can describe them based on what I know about them, but that may not be what they want to be described as. And I am willing to use their, take their lead. You are? Yeah. Well, sometimes there's some companies that are like, they want to, they want you to think they're this. They are. I not. think, I think that this, today's episode, Somehow you should mention when you summarize it, Bob, if you do, that it's like a how-to from journalists to get your story out there, right? Like, I think there's oh, we could do such useful episode. information in here. I have, I have, I think we did it once at some conference, but I actually think all conferences should have that panel. Yeah. Uh, the, hey, real quick, this is how you try to get our attention. Yeah, we did it at Ilta. Yeah, yeah. One year, or maybe two, a couple of times at Ilta. Yeah. Uh. Which could be a cue for Joe to talk about Ilta. Yeah, okay. Are we moving into the rant phase? Is that what we're doing now? I guess. <laughs> but look, I, I, I'm not necessarily ranting. I, I actually think this, this also is related to that clock revelation we all had. It seems as though the press is getting weirdly lost in some of these conferences. Um, we didn't necessarily know clock was happening. Uh, with Ilta, we all, you know, obviously it had been pitched to us all that it was going to be this hybrid model. We've talked on this show about how a number of us have already started talking to people about things to do there. Uh, and then uh, this week, we all started getting the perfunctory email from uh, ILTA saying, as press members, you can watch online if you want, uh, which was not at all kind of how it was sold as a concept. It, ultimately, I get it. Uh, Except in Caroline that, and me, I think. Did anybody else get, anybody yeah, else got the other one? <laughs> Oh, really? So they, wait, they sent another and... one? Oh, I couldn't yeah, no, Are we going to be by the pool? Oh, well, oh wait, wait, mine, wait. Was, mine was, we would like to have you come to Las Vegas. Oh, so. yeah, oh really? Oh, so I thought, oh, oh, I thought when you made that, when you responded to our internal group email with, oh, they're putting me up in a penthouse, I assumed you were joking. Oh, well, I was so joking they're... about the penthouse. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, no, they suck. Uh, the limo um... is definitely not part of it. No, yeah, no I'm paying um, for my own. Yeah. No, so... it, it's... It's completely, the, the thing is, I get it on the grounds that they can't necessarily give out uh, passes to everything because even though Vegas has more or less said they're going to be open to 100% capacity by June, they are not there now. And so you can't necessarily give out uh, tickets that you can't 
honor if those restrictions don't get lifted, but they ex everyone expects they're going to get lifted and then uh, they'll do that. Uh, that said, uh, it's something of a shambles of how they're trying to go about doing it. Uh, knowing this situation, they absolutely are doing it in, in, in a very kind of haphazard and um, scoot up way. I mean, I'm very sympathetic. I wrote them was like, oh, no, I mean, I get it by June, you're going to have the all clear and then you'll probably hand all these out. And I don't, I certainly don't mind waiting until then. Uh, and if they don't, we'll do it just the same way we do Legal Tech New York and everybody's just going to get a room and we're not going to ever go to the conference because it's, you know, basically in the way and an excuse for us all to meet in suites. Uh, but it would be nice if they could uh, avoid that fate. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I agree with you, Joe. I mean, I I was also hashtag not invited, um, which, uh, but, uh, you know, and, and I understand it. I mean, the hotel put restrictions on how many people can be there and they have to elect between paying customers and, you know, those of us that get passes complimentary. And, but it, it just, uh, any way you shake it, it kind of left a bad taste in, in those of us that didn't get an invite. I mean, it, that's just human nature. And uh, it could have been, I think, thought through and, and, and maybe said from the beginning, well, you know, right now we can't bring everybody. We hope to be able to bring everybody, you know, keep your powder dry. Yeah. But, uh, but instead it was sort of held out as, Hey, we're open and you're going to see all you, all you great people in Vegas and make your plans. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's a situation. It is an unprecedented situation. And I understand the pressures they're under. It seems as though it's being uh, operated in less than ideal fashion. Uh, but, you know, well, I'm sure we'll all forget about this by yeah, June. Yeah. Yeah. The, only, the only thing I'd say is that, so uh, for, for everyone remembers the last CEO when there was a big press debacle, because do you remember that? And I, and I wrote- well, I remember remembers well. it well. <laughs> I, and, I, and, I wrote, and I wrote a very derogatory piece on the plane calling him something like an effing arsehole or something. And I, I don't know, anyway. No. <laughs> So um, and that was but that was different, right? So so he that was a very sinister attack on the press, and I was absolutely disgusted. I think the only thing I'd say about Joy and Dawn and that lot, you know, I I, I think that we know that that they understand the value of the press. We've been felt we've I feel that they have you know they they do really get the value. They get that people are there to speak to the press, and I kind of feel like there's no kind of unlike that previous thing there's no sinister you know they're just I, I I think it's really difficult and I can it's easy for me to say but I just feel like they're I don't know it's very but then having said that that's perhaps an important point to make which is that in terms of the press being there you know that is one of the reasons why without being too you know blowing smoke up whatever but you know people do go there to get publicity right so actually the press are a really important part of the conference and you need good press reference representation there because as we know we've got all of them you know the media the PR reps who are constantly trying to you know get get their the, get their clients in front of us and so we are you know press form a big part of the fabric right so you need good press representation you know i, I think as, as I, I think i talked about on our clubhouse show earlier in the week it to me it kind of points out some of the inherent risks with hybrid conferences um you know people are going everybody's kind of going around so oh, we're just we're going to have hybrid and we'll have the best of both worlds but you don't necessarily end up and maybe this is unique and won't happen again but i tend to think I mean, you, you, with the vendors and with attendees and you different price points and 
different ways of participating and in all kinds of cost issues. I think hybrid conferences, uh, you know, are going to be harder than people think to pull off successfully. Do you know what's yeah. so interesting? Sorry. Yeah, well, I was just going to, I just wanted to uh, kind of underscore what you said, Caroline, because in a part, that's part of what makes this um, sort of stand out as, as an incident is just because they, their ILTA did have a history of having really uh, problematic relations with the press at, at various points. Uh, it, it, I mean, Nikki can tell you her story, but uh, uh, you know, she had issues with them as well. Um, and, and the current administration, whatever you want to call it, the folks who, who are the head of that organization now have made a diligent uh, and largely successful effort to counter that uh, and to uh, kind of form, you know, more open and transparent relationships with the press uh, and um, keep the press informed of things going on there, uh, you know, even to the point where, where there's been bad news, they've called a press conference and, you know, been, been right up front about it. Um, and uh, so there's a, you know, I, I'm sure they were just between a rock and a hard place here. Uh, and and I'm, I'm not sure there was a, a right way to handle this. I don't, I don't know that they could have said, open the door to all press uh, and probably didn't want to close the door to all press. And, uh, you know, they probably had to find some middle ground. At, at the same time, I was saying earlier, I don't think of, of the ILTA's conferences that I've gone to where the press has actually been there and at physical, physical conferences, not like they're huge numbers. We don't, we don't get, uh, you know, it, it's not the democratic convention or something. We're not, we're not getting huge numbers of reporters there. I mean, I, I feel like maybe 10 or something might be a fair number of how many reporters have been there in the past. So I don't know. Well, I know you think if nothing else, they would have at least been aware of this webcast and been like, I wonder if they all talk to each other. Maybe we should just invite <laughs> oh, them all in person just to be on the safe side here. You know, like that would have been the smart move in my opinion. Yes. <laughs> I wonder if it, it might've occurred to them that this could be a topic on, on this round table. <laughs> and also, can we, can we just, can we just say that, the, can we, Bob, can you just explain how you're going to be by the pool with your GoPro, please? Yeah. Well, yeah, Molly McDonough suggested we do pool coverage, which uh, people listening to this will probably know is, you know, it, uh, often uh, in, uh, uh, like like here in Massachusetts, we have pool coverage of the courts. We'll have one camera in the courtroom and uh, all the other networks and TV newspapers get to use that footage from that camera. So uh, I'm going to do the pool coverage. I'm going to get a GoPro and I'm going to go sit by the pool. And that'll be our uh, pool coverage. No, in fact, you know, the irony is that some of the people who are watching it virtually could probably can, will be able to cover parts of it better than, than those of us who are, are there physically. Uh, certainly the, the seminars will get, you know, you can do, it's easier to cover a seminar online, I think, than to, while you're sitting there alive. I think that's true, but it also, I think that's absolutely true, but it's also kind of strikes at one of the problems, right? Which is that the interesting stuff that we mostly write about is not the like warmed over CLEs that happen, right? We don't talk a lot about those seminars for a reason because they don't actually, they're for IT people at these firms and that's what they get out of them. We don't get much. What we get a lot out of is walking the exhibit floor, having meetings with people and all of that sort of stuff is stuff that is impossible to do virtually and can really only be done physically, which is why this is such a bizarre decision, but alas. 
Yeah, and kind of to that point, I mean, actually, that's why I think this particular conference is the one that you would want journalists at, because the big story here is how the heck are they putting on this legal technology conference, the very first one in person in a year and a half? Like, that is the story. Um, and I think, especially if you're ILTA, you would, and you plan on doing it successfully, I would think you would want that story told in as many outlets as possible. Maybe too much pressure on those of us who are going. Yeah, I'm at least going and uh, we're figuring out the rest. I think we got two in person at ALM. Just, just, just to your point, Joe, about being in person. Yeah. So we've mm -hmm. been in lockdown. I went for my first trip to London, first time on a train in a year, went for a corporate lunch. And there was a few of us, and I'm not kidding you, within the first two minutes, I got more interesting information <laughs> than I have done in the last like six months. Like we were just sat there and it all was coming out and we were just chatting. And it was just, I just, I was like, oh, I've missed this so much. And it was just that there is, I like, I like the virtual now, I like, but it's just incredible the difference it makes being just sat around a table. Like I just was like, wow, this is just the, like it should be. It was just incredible. I mean, look, look, I, I'm sure if if they don't come around on this subject, it really doesn't matter. I mean, the I will just have 30 vendors be walking over to the hotel bar in 20 minute increments all day. Like it's it all gets done. It just makes them look bad, uh, which I am trying not to make them do. But uh, that's now ultimately in their hands. So are you going Joe? Yeah, I mean, I, you're gonna go. Yeah. I, I mean, I've already, I've already got vendors who said, "Oh, are you gonna go? Let's meet." And like, yeah. not that we scheduled times, but I've got people inviting me to things. Like, let's go do this this day and stuff. I'm like, all right, so yeah, I'll go. And, and, and actually, yeah, and actually they, they do not want to go the way of New York. I don't think. Like, I would in, hope not. Like, as in, like, no offense, respect, earmuffs, ALA. No, with respect, I know it's, it's your, like, no, no, no disrespect, but, you know, that, that, and there's lots of reasons why it's like that, where, where Elsa doesn't have to be, obviously, but, so, yeah, I think that if they can make it inclusive, that would be a great thing. Oh, so, so it sounds like, so, Steve, you and I will be at the bar uh, having meetings coming in, yeah, but we could do, like, the, like, the, the alternative, uh, the alternative <laughs> conference right. we'll have a way more fun conference yeah of course it's vegas so people might be wondering what the heck's going on in that bar with people coming and going you might get yeah. like arrested but okay <laughs> wouldn't be their first time so i was gonna say vegas probably would not think that was weird but okay <laughs> yeah, right. all right well I, unfortunately we're not gonna have time to get to all the stories i know there's i think there's a couple more we didn't get to but we are out of time and uh so that's it for today. Thanks to everybody for attending and watching, and we will be back next week and rant more about uh, conferences then.